Hey, 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 welcome to another Pastor Duke podcast coming to you from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Joining me today again, missionary to Quebec, uh, Canada, Jay Abish and Pastor Larry DeNovo, one of my preacher boys. They've been on the podcast before and we tackled last week on the topic of uh, Calvinism, uh, predestination and election. We made it very clear we really do believe in election. It's biblical. We do believe in the sovereignty of God. But in this controversy, there's uh, uh, different interpretations of words. And we're going to be a little bit more textual today. Uh, These guys are loaded for bear. They have uh, done their homework. And we're going to look at what you might call a problem uh, texts, uh, the texts that that were uh, brought to me by Calvinists who tried to convert me from my position to their position way back early in my Christian life. And all three of us have had that happen, as you, uh, my listening audience, will probably have the same experience, maybe already have. And I want to go on record again today that I have some Calvinist friends that I work very closely with through the years. I love them with all my heart, but really disagree with them uh, on this uh, doctrine, and and, and uh, I tell them that you know God will start straighten them all out on the other side, <laughs> and they tell me the same thing. But we're going to look at uh, the scriptures that uh, seem to draw them in. So welcome back, uh, Jay. Welcome back, Larry, to the podcast. Thank and, you. It's great to be here. Uh, so, Larry, I'm going to turn it over to you, okay. uh, Larry, <laughs> Pastor Larry. Jump in and uh, lead us off. Yeah, I'll call you can call me Larry if I can call you Duke Meister. <laughs> okay, it's a deal. All right. Uh, yeah, Romans 9, we're going to look at Romans 9 today and I believe it's the most critical passage of the Bible in terms of um, people that might be at a crossroads in their life where they're not sure whether or not they want to embrace Calvinistic theology or non-Calvinistic theology. And it all rests basically on context. The context that uh, Calvinists believe is this pa- this chapter relates to salvation, uh, predestination, unconditional election, and irresistible grace, that God arbitrarily chooses people. Uh, and we don't have any option of arguing that fact. Okay, now, that's if that's indeed what it means, they have a case. They honestly have a case. But we as non-Calvinists, believe just the opposite. When, when I look at Romans chapter 8, I look at it totally differently, and I think it behooves us to look at some of the rules of context before we enter into it. Here are some of the rules that I operate off of. Is my interpretation of a passage of Scripture consistent with the theme, purpose, and structure of the book in which it's found? Secondly, is it consistent with other scripture about the same subject? God will never contradict himself. Amen. Three, never take a scripture out of context to make it say what you want it to say. That's called isogesis. When you take the scripture and you want the context based upon what the original author has to say, that's called exegesis. Uh, discover what the author's saying and don't add anything to its meaning. There, these are the basic rules. And as I look at Romans, um, especially the first eight chapters, uh, I, I believe Romans is 
the most important book in the New Testament. Um, it's called The Constitution of Christianity. And I look at the first eight chapters of Romans, and it explains in detail the doctrine of justification by faith, uh, sanctification, eternal security. Uh, very, very clear. As a matter of fact, one way you can really understand the pulse of what a book is about is not just by reading it over and over again, but memorizing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I've, had, I've memorized two of those chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 8, and it gives me a heart and a pulse for what Paul was trying to communicate. But then he shifts gears and devotes three chapters in Romans 9 through 11 to the nation of Israel. Why didn't he move from chapter 8 to chapter 12 through 15, which deals with the applicable side of uh, our doctrine and what we believe? But uh, if you look, if, if you do a close study of Romans 9 through 11, Romans 9, he deals with Israel's past, chapter 10, Israel's present, and chapter 11, Israel's future. I was reading different commentaries on the chapter by other commentators, and Dr. Wearsby said, did God make a mistake? No, he says, a careful study of Romans 9 through 11 reveals that this section is not an interruption at all, but is a necessary part of Paul's argument for justification by faith. What I'd like us to do is I want us to listen to a soundbite by a lady from a lady named Megan Phelps, who was being interviewed by Joe Rogan. Megan Phelps is the granddaughter of Pastor Fred Phelps. He was the pastor of Westboro Baptist Church. If you, if you don't know anything about its history, I suggest you do a Google search, but it was a very legalistic church and a very Calvinistic church. And here Megan is here. She's an unbeliever, and she's troubled by Romans 9. She just can't make sense of it. And she shares her frustrations in this video. And I'd like you to listen to it right now. Hold on. Why does God allow that? So this is why I'm not a Christian anymore. Oh, um, you got confused. And you're like, what the? Well, so there's this passage in Romans 9. Well, it's not It's not the only reason I should say, but but I have really I have real trouble with this. And I think it's... It's still hard for me to say, I think this is evil, but I think this is evil. There's this passage in in Romans 9 that talks about, um, it gives this analogy of God as potter and humans as clay in his hands. And it uses the example of Jacob and Esau, who in the Bible, Jacob and Esau were twins. And it says, while they were yet in the womb, before either of them had done good or evil, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And it, so it paints this picture of God, you know, it says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath made for destruction? So it says God created some people as vessels of mercy, people that he loves, and others as vessels of wrath made for destruction. So made for the express purpose of destroying them, of torturing them in hell for eternity. So, and then, so he, it's Paul who's writing, he he paints this picture, God making you do all of the things that you do, and then blessing some and cursing others. And he says, well, you'll, you're going to ask me then, why does God yet find fault for who has resisted his will? Right? So yeah. if God's making you do it, why is he punishing you for it? Right. If God's making you do a horrible thing and you resist his will. You can't resist his will. Right. And so he makes you do it, and then he punishes you for it. And the answer is, 
you don't get to ask that question. Oh. It says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You just don't get to ask that question. And to me, so this is, I've asked, like, for, I spent a long time talking to Christians uh, and, you know, people of, well, mostly Christians, because it's obviously it's New Testament, so, and, but also talking to Jewish people about the Old Testament and found so many of the, like, interpretations, so many of the, our beliefs are not, they're not fully supported by, by the Bible and that there are so many different ways of interpreting so many of our, the more destructive of our beliefs. But that one, I have not found any explanation for that passage that's anything, that makes any kind of sense, that's consistent with the text and, and not evil. And I just, I didn't, I thought I couldn't ask that question for so long when I was at the church, right? I thought, I just have to accept this. This is the truth and nothing that I feel or think matters against it. Um, but now I, I can't not right. think. Of course. I cannot ask the questions. Jay Abish, if we could have Megan Phelps right here in our room right now, and you can you can sense the frustration, uh, the disillusionment she has, and um, she actually wants to abandon Christianity because of what she's read. What would your response be to her? Well, I'll tell you what. In all honesty, as a young Christian, when I first read Romans chapter nine, I was very troubled, and. I think one of the things we need to realize is that contextually, as you were speaking of, we're talking about nations. We're talking about people groups. We're talking about Jews and pagans. Now, in Romans chapter 9 and verses 9 through 13, it's talking about Jacob and Esau. And uh, Paul quotes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You know, it's an interesting thing when in, in really, really studying out the word hate in, in the Bible. Uh, it, it's really to love less or, or to be more negligent. But in Genesis chapter 25, when God was speaking to Rebekah, uh, he said two nations, in Genesis 25, 23, two nations, two people groups, This is a reference to national blessings and not individual salvation. And when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, even though they were yet unborn, understand God's foreknowledge. God foreknew in Genesis 25, 34, that Esau would despise his birthright. God knew in Genesis 26, 34, that Esau would marry Canaanite women. In Hebrews 12, 16, we find that Esau was immoral and profane. And then in Numbers 20, hundreds of years later, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, refused to give Israel passage through its land. So all this God understands and knows in his foreknowledge. In Romans 9.12, it says, The elder shall serve the younger. It does not say that the elder will be lost and the younger will be saved. The context is concerning fewer national blessings. In Genesis chapter 27, uh, we have the stolen blessing because of Jacob's deception. However, we see in Genesis 28 verses 10 through 15 that Jacob did not have to resort to such deception. 
he was going to receive the blessing. But I find it very interesting that later on when Israel was about to enter into the land, Deuteronomy 23, verse 7 says, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 9, we read, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, I find it interesting that Romans chapter 10 and verse 12 says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And then in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. That's salvation. Yeah. There is something else going on here. And in Romans chapter 9, we get into Pharaoh. And I've had people come to me and say, Pharaoh didn't have a choice. Well, understand something. God will facilitate, and we see this in Scripture, God will facilitate the disposition of the heart. Now, let's remember something. When Jacob and his family were in Egypt because of the famine in Canaan, and Pharaoh received him, Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice. According to Pharaoh's orders, Jacob and his family lived in the best part of the country. And then in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, we see that there was a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And his heart was already hardened against the people of Israel. And he was the one who killed the Jewish infants. He was the one that put them in slavery. So God used this disposition already anchored in Pharaoh's heart, and he facilitated that hardness by the plagues. Now, I want to compare Pharaoh to something that I believe is very important for us to understand in Genesis chapter 20 when we talk about God facilitating the disposition of the heart. And I'm going to take some time to read some of this stuff because it's very important. In Genesis 20, verse 1, Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. Now this is the key verse. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. So here, God works upon the disposition of Abimelech's heart. Okay? Even in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 
very important scripture about prophecy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Did God do this without cause? No. He sent them delusion because, listen, if you want to believe a lie, I'll let you believe a lie. And then it goes on to talk about the vessels of clay in verses 20 through 24. And any Jewish person reading what Paul is writing here would immediately be referenced to Jeremiah in chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And this is this is essential to understand this. And, and this gonna, is not what Megan didn't know this. If she would have known this, she'd have had her answer, and all that trouble would have gone away. I believe so, uh, because these are the things that answered my questions about mm-hmm. it, because I was very disturbed. Yeah, we got to wrestle it. through some stuff. Yeah. But in Jeremiah chapter 18, I'm going to take the time to read verses 1 through 12 because I think it's crucial for us to look at this. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Now remember, in Romans chapter 9, it's of the same lump. So we see two vessels made from the same lump of clay, the one that was marred, and then he took it again, and he made it again. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom? Any nation, any kingdom, okay? I'm, I'm just saying that. I'm throwing that out there. To pluck up and to pull down and to destroy. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Jonah, Nineveh, God was going to destroy the place. What did they do? They repented. So it became a vessel unto honor because they repented. I'm going to go on in Jeremiah. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight that obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a, a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices, and we will every one do the imagination of his evil heart. What happened? Israel, that could have been a vessel unto honor at that time, at that point in time, was taken over by Babylon and carried away captive. Why? Because they wouldn't repent. So what could have been a vessel unto honor became a vessel unto dishonor. And the same principle applies to Pharaoh and Egypt. In Genesis 
47, as I mentioned, Pharaoh was blessed by Jacob. Egypt was a vessel unto honor. In Exodus chapter 1, the new Pharaoh, which was destroying the Jewish babies and put them in slavery, Egypt became a vessel unto dishonor. But I find it very interesting that in Isaiah chapter 19, which is a prophecy about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Egypt is there being blessed, and so is Assyria. They become a vessel unto honor. I also find it very interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 7 and 8, that the children of Egypt and the children of Edom could enter into the congregation of the Israelites in the third generation. The same principle applies to pagans. There will be Jews saved, even though the nation as a whole rejects Christ, of the same lump. There will be pagans saved from all nations, of the same lump. Man can believe. Man can exercise his faith. But what it's talking about here, I believe, with all my heart, as from what I see, is blessings or cursings dependent upon how a nation responds to God. And what is the proverb? There's a proverb that says, um, or it's in the Psalms, that the nations that forget God will be turned to hell. And so what Paul's saying is, how can you accuse God unrighteously? I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do, but there is a cause of why God will destroy a vessel of dishonor and why God will bless a vessel unto honor. It's dependent upon their obedience to God's will and God's command. Wowzer. <laughs> That's the best exegetical uh, uh, explanation of that passage. <laughs> I'm blown away. I know my audience is too. See why I hang out with Jay Abish and Pastor Larry DeNovo? These guys are wicked smart. I think I said in our last podcast, I don't think Jay killed as many brain cells as I did in 1969. I think, Larry, you were a brain cell killer too. <laughs> yeah, I smoked some too. So <laughs> I, now I'm repenting in leisure. <laughs> One of the things you brought out, Jay, I think is really, really important is God looks at the disposition of the heart. And I think the real controversy in Romans chapter 9 is when it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, you know, it, I think it's found 18 times, 17 or 18 times in the book of Exodus. But the first six times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then after that, it says that God hardened his heart. And that's what I've seen as God works upon the disposition of the heart. Pharaoh, if you want to keep hardening your heart, okay, I'll help you with that. Um, if you want to believe a lie like I read in Thessalonians, I'll help you with that because you won't repent. If this is what you want to believe, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the huge argument we have here is the context related to individuals in terms of God electing them, predestinating them for salvation, or is it a national issue? People need to realize there are two elections in the Bible. There's the election of Israel, and there's the election of the believer and non-believer. Of course, we mentioned in the last podcast that election is based on foreknowledge or God's omniscience. It does not eliminate the will of man or the will and direction of a nation. Correct. They, they reap what they sow. Yeah. We believe that we're elect in accordance to the foreknowledge of God. Amen. Calvinists believe that we're elect in spite of the foreknowledge of God. There's a difference. But getting back to Pharaoh hardening the heart, you know, 
the Apostle Paul mentions this a couple times before he even brings it up in Romans 9. But I like what he says in Romans chapter 2. He's speaking to the Jews. And he sh- the first three verses of Romans 9, it really it humbles me because I read the heart of the Apostle Paul, and he had the same heart as the prophet Moses. Both men were willing to sacrifice their own salvation and be cursed and separated from God so that Israel would be saved. Now, you know what? I have a ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina. Every Thursday, my wife and I, we go in there and we try to reach the homeless with bag lunches. We try to make their stomach happy first, and then we try to make their souls happy by sharing God's word. And my wife has grown to truly love those people. I have as well. But I can't say that I'd be willing to sacrifice my salvation for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, Pastor Duke, you you, uh, were a senior pastor for 32 years. Is that accurate? And associate for another eight. Are you willing to sacrifice your salvation for your flock? I haven't arrived to that level yet. (laughs) But, you know, and then Paul in verses four and five, he talks about the blessings of Israel. You know, God elected Israel. He didn't elect any other country, and he gave blessings to Israel. He didn't give to any other country. And I know America's been blessed, but we're no Israel. But he brings out the point. He says not every person who's uh, who's in Israel is a, a spiritual Israel. In Romans 2, he talks about you're not saved because of your um, Jewishness. Jewish ethnic ethnicity is that the word you know let me just quote from romans 2 28 he says for you are not a true jew just because you were born of jewish parents this is the nlt sorry about that Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision no a true jew is one whose heart is right with god now you talked about god moves on a heart whose heart is postured he looks at the disposition of their hearts and and that's how we looked at that's how we looked at Pharaoh. He did not harden Pharaoh's heart uh, against his will, but in accordance to his will. Huge point. I would just like to add, on a contemporary level, in examining what we examined with the the potter's wheel and the vessel, there was a time when America was a vessel unto honor, and I fear what we're seeing now happen around us. It's becoming a vessel unto dishonor, and I fear God's judgment for the nation just as we saw any nation, even Israel. When Israel turned against God, it became a vessel unto dishonor, and God had to judge Israel. Mm-hmm. Was, Jay was mentioning the potter, potter's wheel. I go back to teaching and got in Bible college. It really helped me understand this passage of Scripture when a potter is creating from the same lump of clay uh, a new vessel in his heart, every vessel he's making is an honor, a vessel of honor. He's not saying, I'm going to make a vessel of dishonor. No, that has to do with the vessel itself. Sometimes when the potter's making a vessel, there's a some foreign substance, a little stone or stick or something in it, and on the potter's wheel, he kind of surfaces in his finger and he pulls it out and does it and, and, and it, it removes it. It's a vessel of honor in his heart. And sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of hidden in the clay. 
He didn't feel it, and it looks great on the outside. They fire that thing, and in the firing, it cracks a little bit. It's marred, and now it will probably wind up being a vessel of dishonor. And it's the vessel of honor and dishonor is to do with its use. The owner of the vessel has a vessel of honor. He takes it out in public down to get the fresh water from the well and bring it home each day. And then the vessel of dishonor is how they use it. A vessel that has been marred uh, is used uh, for the refuse water. When they wash their feet, when they wash their hands, things left over in cooking, whatever, all of that refuse water is put into a vessel of dishonor. It's not taken out in public. It's just used for basically irrigation. Now, that water is going to be wasted. It'll be used for irrigation uh, purposes agriculturally. So in the heart of the potter, God is the potter. We are the clay. The potter wants everybody to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. but all, So he just makes vessels of honor. And then left to our own decisions, what we do with the vessels, uh, what we do with our own life, then we're held accountable for it. If we, you know, I was a vessel of dishonor as a young man, rejecting Christ and uh, staying out of church. And then uh, a gal invites me to church. And here I am, a terrible vessel of dishonor. And yet God in his mercy saves me and turns me into a vessel of honor. Jump in, Pastor Larry. I'm just listening to you guys. I'm just I'm just in full agreement. I, I think the context here is very clearly national. I don't really understand how notable, credible, brilliant theologians like Dr. John MacArthur, who, by the way, I have been blessed by greatly. I mean, I've got... I've had many of his commentaries. I've appreciated his exegesis on different books of the Bible. And his stand in the COVID era to keep his church open. I have huge respect for the man, but he's a man, and I disagree with him yeah. on uh, irresistible grace. But he's a Greek theologian. He understands the Greek he, far better than I do. I, I strongly depend on Strong's Concordance, <laughs> you know, because I don't know the Greek. I wish I did, but I don't. But I think that there's overwhelming evidence here. I just don't, I don't even think there's, it's debatable, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a theological battle that has been raging for 500 years. I see Calvinism having coming in in waves. And my heart just broke as I listened to that uh, gal, uh, Megan, and my heart breaks as she was in such a radical church and did some things that were greatly embarrassing to the cause of Christ, the Westboro Baptist Church. I don't think the spirit of Jesus would uh, behave as they did. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, good. But if you study it out, I know you'll agree with me. They were a mess. And here's a young lady, uh, the granddaughter of the pastor, facing these things. She sees that passage of Scripture. And uh, if she could have sat down with J.A. Bish for 15 minutes, she could have had total peace because God was not judging Esau because he just hated his guts. It's like he for whom he foreknew what Esau would do, and he facilitated Esau's heart, and it's sad. But it's clearly talking about nationalism there, not salvation. And so that passage of Scripture really, uh, I think you guys did a great job laying that out. Or do we have any thoughts about Ephesians chapter 1? That was a passage that was really um, uh, kind of thrown in my face by those that tried to pull me into that uh, thing. My home church was splitting in 1973, 
I had a fellow uh, throw a book in my face and said, uh, told me our pastor doesn't uh, preach the word of God and that he's a heretic and this book will straighten me out. And uh, it's amazing. I did not uh, buy into that book. I did not buy into Calvinism. And that was some <laughs> 50 years ago. And God has chosen to use me anyway. Uh, I went to New York with a, a fire burning in my heart, believing whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. And uh, I kept telling people about Jesus. It turned out a whole bunch of them were the elect. <laughs> and many of them came to Christ. But it says in Ephesians 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 4, according as he, God, hath chosen us. That's wonderful. Uh, in him before the foundation of the world, and, and Peter makes it very clear, for whom he did foreknow. He knew our will. He could see in advance who would and who wouldn't. And those of us who would, he chose us. I remember uh, that, that word chosen uh, when I was in third grade, moved from uh, Hedges Elementary School in Mansfield, Ohio, to Lucas Elementary School in Lucas, Ohio. I went out on the playground there choosing up a baseball team and I was the new kid. Nobody knew me. And so they chose everybody up. I get so-and-so I get Johnny, I get Bill, I get Jimmy. And then at the end, okay, I'll take the new kid. What's your name? Duke. I really wasn't chosen, but at that time on the playground, I went four for four. I got four hits. And then the next time they chose me first, that made me very happy. And God has chosen us. That's comforting. I believe God chose us, but he knew he gave us a will. He knew what we would do. So see the Calvinists would read that very differently than I do. So I believe that with all of my heart, but they see it in a very God uh, arbitrarily did I say that arbitrarily chose us before the foundation of the world and say we had no will, we had no worship. He just did it. And it just, the whole, the whole chapter uh, about election is comforting. It's assurance. It, it's the eternal security of the believer. Uh, it says in verse nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. He didn't just start loving me uh, June 18th, 1972. when I received him as my savior. He loved me from eternity past. And that's what the doctrine of a, a biblical election is all about. We exercised our will that he gave us. He, uh, he made us in the image of himself uh, in reading our nostrils, breath of life, man became a living soul, body, soul, and spirit. Ability to obey or to disobey, holding us accountable for our disobedience. And so um, that's a, a comfort to me. I do believe in the doctrine of election with all my heart, but for whom he did foreknow. Foreknowledge does not eliminate our will. It just exalts his omniscience. He knows what we're going to do with our will. I see Jay's got his Bible open. You ready to jump in here, Jay? I'm, I would just say, uh, again, going back to our last discussion the process of election in the parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we're chosen according to God's foreknowledge because of him seeing our reception to the call of the cross of Calvary. And our reception is our ultimate praise to this God of grace and mercy. It's our ultimate worship. It's where it begins. And I know he provided salvation through Jesus Christ, 
and it all began. His plan of redemption began before the foundation of the world, and he looks out into the future and his omniscience, and he sees it all even before it's happened. And uh, mercy is extended. That Christ goes to a cross, um, not willing that any should perish, and he sends his spirit to enlighten, I believe, every man. John 1, 9, he lighteth the path of every man. And then us three, we chose to walk in that light. He knocked on the door of our heart. We chose to open it. He convicted us of our sin, and we believed him. We agreed with him against ourselves. We repented. We're in agreement with God. The best definition of repentance I've ever heard is repentance is getting on God's side of things against ourselves. <laughs> and we did that. And that was wisdom. And when we did that, we brought him honor. We brought him glory. He was happy. So I, I love to tell people when he was on the cross, Larry and Jay and Duke and all of our listening audience, we were on his heart. We were on his mind. Man, that's a that's a grace of God. I'm just glad that God is not a respecter of persons. And I think that's what was really the deal breaker where I could not buy into Calvinism. The ground is all level at the cross. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody has the opportunity to accept Jesus. You know, I look at the the consequences of unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited atonement. I mean, I'm a pastor. Well, I was a pastor. I'm a retired pastor now, but I'm still in the ministry. I still do evangelistic work. This work that we've got going on in Charlotte, Front line excites me. Tip of the spear. And we see the moving of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going into Charlotte thinking, well, what's the sense? <laughs> what's the use? God's already predetermined it. Now, I know people will say, well, it's because God commanded it. I understand that. But it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> if God predetermined arbitrarily, because they're going to get saved whether I want to or not, whether I go there or not. I'll save the money on the lunches. Let me just interject something that you just said that I found very interesting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That is potential, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost, but forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. If Calvinistic election were true, there would be no warfare in Paul's life for trying to win souls, mm. that they might be saved. They're forbidding us. And I believe it was even Jesus talking to the Pharisees, I think it's in Luke, where uh, he reproached them for hindering those that would come into the kingdom, those that would want to, they hinder them. I mean, that's, that's again, that's another scripture of, against um, their thinking of, of election. Jay, you just quoted the elect nation. 
is rejecting the gospel. Exactly. The fact that they were elect nation didn't mean that they're Christian, that they're going to have eternal life. And then so I love that thought that the elect nation and, of course, the elect people are based upon God's foreknowledge, always based upon his foreknowledge. I I heard it put it this way. God's foreknowledge is not causative. God knowing what will happen doesn't make it happen. And he holds us accountable for what we choose, uh, which way we go. I heard it say this way also that on one side of the door, Jesus is the door. It says, whosoever will. Enter in at the straight gate. You were invited. Enter in at the straight gate, whosoever will. Then we go through that door by obedience and by faith. That door closes behind us, and it says, elect from the foundation of the world. (laughs) Well, which one is true? Both of them. But he gave us a will, and he holds us accountable for our will, and he rewards us accordingly went with obedience. So God is not the author of evil. He's not the author. He didn't pre-damn people to hell, but with a broken heart in eternity past, he knew who would enter in and who wouldn't. And those of us who did, he calls us the elect. And that is a comforter to me. Let me just end with this thought because man can believe. In Acts chapter 16, Verses 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The Calvinist teaches that man cannot believe unless he is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, regeneration comes before conversion. Mm-hmm. However, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. We read this, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Calvinists say they can't turn. Exactly. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, when Philip, the deacon, was preaching to the Samaritans, Many of them were saved. And then what happened? He had to call the apostles to lay their hands upon them that the Holy Spirit might be imparted to those new believers. See, this is a transitional book here, but the Holy Spirit was at work in the heart and ministry of Philip as he was preaching the word of God, but there was no regeneration before those people in Samaria believed. The regeneration came after they believed. What I get from Jay's input uh, in the last two podcasts is he's brought out scriptures in this topic that I'd never considered before, but that's a mark of good doctrine because when you have good doctrine, everywhere you go, you see the same thing. And uh, that has been very edifying for me, all the input you put into this, Jay, so I appreciate it. And I'm begging the opportunity to have you back. Just as a point of context, I mean, Jay brought out, and I think we, I brought out as well, 
that the Calvinist belief is that in eternity past God, when God elected us, at that point God regenerates the elect. And even what Jesus did on the cross atoned for their sin at that time. So their claim is that regeneration takes at the point of election. And they get that from Ephesians 2, one, where it says, Ye hath he quickened, were once dead in trespasses and sins. But that's not the context of Ephesians 2. The context of Ephesians 2 is Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith. So in reality, they put the cart before the horse. Salvation comes by faith. They put salvation before the faith instead of after the faith. So they have it backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll draw it to a conclusion. I'd like to thank these guys for jumping in and being a part of, of my podcast. It's important to hit uh, these major doctrinal things uh, along the way. And uh, I'm grateful for our listening audience uh, for, for joining us. I hope these things have been a blessing. Don't you agree with me that three uh, opinions and 100 years of uh, pastoral experience are better than one? So, guys, I really appreciate being in. And the passionate side of it all is this for me. Christ died for everybody. Amen. God loves everybody. Amen. Amen. And I've never met anybody Jesus doesn't love. When Jesus knocks on the door of their heart, they open it, they enter in. So uh, podcast family, thanks for joining me again. Pray that you'll uh, like, subscribe, join, share, all that stuff. Help me get the gospel to the ends of the earth. I hope this has been a blessing. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time. Bye-bye for now.